Welcome back to a, another episode of Thinking Critically. I am your host, as always, Jonathan Maloney. Today, I have my cousin Patrick here. He's uh, finishing up his PhD in epidemiology at Louisiana State. And he's going to talk today a little bit about what it is that he does as an epidemiologist, and in particular, getting into vaccines, which is the primary weapon of choice or tool, if you will, uh, to come back combat infectious diseases in the world. And we're going to talk a little about, about vaccine hesitancy as well. So, Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. Well, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. It's, it was really cool to schedule this because, uh, you know, obviously it's the holiday time and you don't live in the States, so you were home. And I'm like, let's do this. Let's go ahead and get him on. Yeah. Because as you know, vaccine hesitancy is, it's not a new phenomenon, but it's uh, definitely something that needs to be pushed back on. But I, yeah, I do. I was, I was really uh, curious though about how you came into all of this because I don't know I don't even I know that we're related but I don't even know if I've had this conversation in detail <laughs> with you yeah uh, so I actually have an interesting path to epidemiology and you know what I'm doing now dealing mm -hmm. with vaccine preventable diseases so I started out um, at North Central College here in Illinois in Naperville and I studied political science, um, which is a pretty big, uh, you know, pretty far cry from epidemiology. So for people who don't know, epidemiology is the population level study of the distribution and determinants of disease. So basically, mm -hmm. we look at disease on a macro level in the population, make our assessments and recommend prevention and control measures in order to halt the, popula the population level spread of disease. So um, that's just sort of like a very basic description of what we do. And I'm sure we'll go into more specifics, but um, basically that's what it is. <clears throat> have you always so, been, a, have you always been like super big into science though, eventually? Cause I, yeah. well, I know you started off in poli sci yeah. and then you kind of made this transition, but there must've been some sort of underlying kind yeah. of pull towards science. So I've, I've always been interested in science. Like my problem was I had so many interests when I was younger yeah. and I, I still do today. And uh, it makes focusing on one thing pretty, pretty difficult. So when I got to school and I was doing my undergrad, I changed my major no less than like six, seven, eight times. I don't even know. Was it really um, that much? Yeah. Oh man. Was, I didn't know. Bad. I didn't know that. I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can relate. I mean, I changed my, I changed my major a number of times myself, but it wasn't that much. Yeah. It was, it was bad. Like, uh, but eventually I got so far into political science just didn't make any sense to switch. And there were things about political science that I really enjoyed. Um, one, it's, it is a science, albeit a social science, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of statistics involved and um, sort of uh, philosophy. Like I, I enjoyed the philosophy, the political philosophy in particular, uh, looking into human nature and why human beings form societies. And then I wrote my thesis in international development theory. Mm -hmm. So looking at the way in which countries develop and what hinders and what aids development of countries. So I've always been, I've always had this global focus and that sort of precipitated me to look at opportunities outside of the United States where I could, you know, where I could make a difference, where I could make an impact. So in my junior year, I want to say it was, I went down to Guatemala and I started teaching in an elementary school. And uh, we were teaching, we were running public health programs, uh, nutritional programs, being sure that 
kids were um, were eating right, getting, you know, at least one meal a day and one snack a day in the morning and the afternoon. Uh, we were running shoe programs um, to put shoes on kids' feet um, because in those areas, as unfortunate as it is, uh, they don't have access to a lot of basic, basic things. Such and, as uh, shoes. Such yeah, as shoes. Really yeah. shoes. Okay. Um, and um, there's certain types of parasitic infections that can very easily enter your body through your feet, like uh, soil-based helmets. And uh, so protecting them against that and uh, also running hygiene programs like mm -hmm. toothbrushes, toothpaste, like teaching good oral health. And we ran uh, clean stove building programs too. So in a lot of places around the world, uh, people build their cooking fires within whatever domicile they have, whatever yeah. they call home, and there's mm -hmm. no proper ventilation. And what they're burning are unclean fuels. So they're using biomass fuels like uh, animal scat, which is animal manure that mm -hmm. you know is combustible, okay. or they're using uh, wood or anything like that. All of those release harmful pollutants into the air and without proper ventilation, those things get into your lungs, cause chronic conditions like um, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, pneumonia, all, all these other sorts of yeah. um, infections. Um, did you, so we were, just real quick, uh, did you find people burning like plastics and things mm -hmm. like that yeah. as well? Anything, like that, that, would, to me anything that would burn. Anything that would burn. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that the hazard level of some of these things like chronic chronic exposure to the smoke that's coming off of them varies but it's probably all yeah. bad we saw a lot of respiratory disease when we were down yeah. there and it's really unfortunate um but anyway we built yeah. clean burning stoves that had ventilation okay. and um in order to hopefully reduce the burden of respiratory disease um so i loved my experience down in guatemala in the next year, I was asked back to run the project in Nicaragua, and that's where I stayed for eight or nine months. Um, so I took a term at North Central <laughs> College, and they were very willing to work with me. They were great about it. And um, I, I took a term where I took some classes like independent studies where <laughs> I basically, yeah. you know, communicated with some professors via Skype and like wrote some papers and whatnot. But it allowed me to be down in Nicaragua doing all these programs that I loved among these children that I loved too. And um, I could do it while still maintaining my school status, not That's going into cool. payment like of my student yeah. loans, like yeah. all that sort of nonsense <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that you have to worry about. Um so, but when I was down there, that's where my interest really shifted from politics into practical application of scientific skills. Uh, so while I was down there, there was just this massive outbreak of dengue. So I arrived in April, which is the beginning of the rainy season in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And um, I was working in this community called the Thompson, and it was a squatter community. So basically, nobody owned the land that they were on or anything like that. But everybody was building sort of these ramshackle huts, I guess. I don't know what you'd want to say, but they were built out of like discarded wood and plastics. And maybe if they were lucky, they had some of that like corrugated tin for like roofs, but um, there were like no, no, no running water, no toilets. And that was actually one of the programs that we started while we were down there building latrines. So they actually had like clean areas to dispose of, you know, human waste. Yeah. Um, but while I was down there, there was just a massive outbreak of dengue. And uh, dengue is an arbovirus, which means that it's transmitted uh, via mosquito bites. Um, and uh, so while you were down there in the rainy season, there was there were all these like muddy ruts, like the whole road going into La Thompson was just like spun out like tire ruts like yeah. the, and. 
Pools of still water everywhere. Mosquitoes is basically what I was saying. What I'm trying to say here, yeah. And uh, those are like the perfect breeding grounds for the Aedes mosquito, which is actually what transmits the um, the virus. So anyway, while I was down there, I just saw so many of the kids that I was working with get sick, fall ill, have the fever, the chills, the muscle aches, like the debilitating nausea, uh, their rashes. And it was, it's a truly horrible and debilitating disease that lays you up for, you know, a week or two. And it's particularly sinister in that you actually begin to recover and then you get hit with a second wave of disease, which is like sort of like the way it says goodbye, I guess, before you heal. Yeah. And if you get it a second time, it's actually worse. So the the severity of the disease increases with multiple infections. Oh, wow. So like I said, it's particularly awful disease. And there's no there's no real treatment or prevention. So while I was down there, um, the community was obviously t- trying to take steps to alleviate that burden of disease. Yeah. And the steps that they were taking was, um, you know, they were staying indoors at night, windows closed, um, or the house buttoned up as tight as possible. And uh, they were, you know, doing mosquito blowing, like with uh, insecticides, yeah. like inside the homes and like in the community and everything like that. And it didn't stop the disease at all. It did not stop the spread. Everything had to sort of run its natural cycle, but that didn't make any impact. And it wasn't until I know what I know now that I could have understood what was happening then. Okay. And it's that the 80s mosquito doesn't bite during the evening. So staying in your home is not going to make any impact. It's when you go outside during the day that you get bit because these mosquitoes, unlike the Anopheles, which carry malaria, for example, okay. Um, they bite during the day, not during uh, the evening. So they didn't, they didn't know that. Exactly. Okay. And they don't live in your home. They live around the outskirts of your home and they breed in, okay. pool, in, uh, in uh, pools of stagnant water, which we weren't doing anything to eliminate or eradicate. So uh, I see. we just, everything that we did, we were trying to put a Band-Aid on the outbreak, but... You weren't getting to the... We weren't getting yeah. to, the, to the root cause, the root, root cause problem. So this, this, just seeing this kind of was like, hey, yeah. I'm thinking about switching. Well, it sort of made me realize that, you know, politicians, I mean, obviously they're the decision makers and they can direct funds and, you know, any sort of lasting change happens at the policy level. But we've got a lot of things that are going on right now that, you know, that people in Washington or politicians around the world aren't doing anything about. So I wanted to actually be on the ground. I wanted to be working with people and I wanted to be making a difference on, on an everyday basis. Yeah. I felt like that's where, you know, my skills could be, could be most useful. So I transitioned, um, from political science into, into epidemiology. And when I got back from Nicaragua, I was in like, I was in, I was in a rut myself. I was in, I was in like a deep depression because I went from working with the kids every day, working mm-hmm. with the community every day, running these public health programs, running these elementary schools to coming home and taking classes again. It yeah. was like, I, I mean, you go from making this huge, huge difference, having this impact on a regular basis, like yeah. seeing the results of your work and the fruits of your labor. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm back in a school environment and it's like, what am I even doing with myself at this point? You know, I was there. I should be out. I should be out making the world a better place. It was like, I mattered. I mattered there. Like I was making a difference. Like I was having an impact on people's lives. And, um, 
yeah, so I was, I was like deeply depressed and I just realized like I couldn't continue on the path that I was going, going on. on. Okay. Yeah. So the original path was, you know, political science, go to law school, you know, work with the law firm, maybe transition into politics to do something like that. Um, like just a typical career path, but I like did an abrupt 180 and um, finished my political science degree, but I also did all my prereqs for medical school. Okay. So I have background in the, you know, the physical and biological and chemical sciences. And I actually went so far in chemistry that I was able to get a job as a chemist um, after I was out of my bachelor's degree, but before I started my master's degree. So I did that for about a year. And um, then I went and I got my master's degree at University of Illinois, Chicago. And um, while I was there, I held appointments um, in the Chicago Department of Public Health. I worked in the division of STIs and HIV. And I also had an appointment with the uh, Department of Medicine at UIC in uh, the Division of Infectious Diseases. And there I worked primarily on parasitic infections and recent immigrants, which was a whole super interesting brand yeah. of research, sort of beyond the purview of what we're talking about here, but very interesting. Uh, and then I went directly from my master's degree into my PhD, and that's where I'm at now, uh, at Louisiana State University. And my research now um, sort of diverted from what I was doing uh, in my master's degree. And now I research vaccine preventable diseases in adults. Okay. Um, so most of my research focuses primarily on the flu vaccine, but we also deal with uh, pneumovax, zoster vaccines, uh, Tdap, and uh, other assorted vaccines like that. So for the listeners out there, those particular vaccines that you, besides the flu, like Tdap, et cetera, um, which diseases are they aimed at preventing? So Pneumovax is a two vaccine series that um, starts when you're 60 years old, I want to say. And uh, you get one dose and then you get a booster a year later. And that prevents against pneumococcal disease. Zoster prevents against um, herpes zoster or shingles, uh, okay. which is a particularly devastating disease, not because it causes any sort of mortality. Like it doesn't have like a high mortality rate, but it is a painful disease. Shingles. <laughs> Shingles. Yeah. Painful, painful disease. And uh, then the Tdap is um, tetanus, diphtheria, and acellular pertussis. And that's something that you get as a booster when you're an adolescent too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But those are, those are the primary like adult vaccinations that, that we deal with now. Interesting. Very, yeah. very interesting. So, uh, so the research that you are focusing now is primarily dealing with um, the vaccine preventable. And I'm assuming that certain aspects of what you're interested in is dealing with uh, vaccine hesitancy or how to how do you convince the public that this is a public good and that this is something that they should be compliant with? Yeah. 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 And that's sometimes a tough sell, uh, <laughs> particularly to adults. Um like with their adult vaccinations, because they have a low risk perception generally and a high negative view of vaccination. So I guess that, you know, when we you, should uh, real quick, when you say uh, risk perception, you're, you're meaning like they almost are completely oblivious to how much of at risk they are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with okay. the uh, for the influenza vaccination, um, primarily with flu shot, that's where all of my my personal research focuses on uh, people. People do not think they are going to get the flu. They they just don't understand yeah. um, that uh, getting the flu is a is an 
awful, awful thing. Uh, you have uh, nausea, headaches, fever, um, and uh, muscle pain, and it, it can be uh, it can lay you up for you know for a pretty long period of time. Well, but, no, it can kill certain people. Yeah, I mean, and that's, and I mean, that's I, the, there's more at-risk populations, you know, the young and then the elderly and those who have compromised immune systems in general, but yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. And that's, um, and, and that's an important, important aspect that I think that we need to start educating people about in general is that vaccination is generally something that you have to have a community-minded perspective about. Mm -hmm. So with the flu shot in particular, uh, if you and I were to get the flu, it wouldn't be the end of the world, right? I mean, we would be sick and eventually we'd get over it. Yeah. But by us having the flu, if we come in contact with, you know, Infant. if we were at home for Christmas, yeah. for example, and all those kids are running around, if they were to contract the flu virus from one of us, they could have particularly bad consequences or bad outcomes because their immune systems are underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. Or if we came into contact with our grand Agnes, for example, you know, if she yeah. were to get the flu, that would, that could potentially lead to some bad outcomes. So Influenza causes about 200,000 hospitalizations and between 3,000 and 49,000 deaths on an annual basis. And most of those hospitalizations and those, uh, those deaths are occurring among the very young, the very old, and those with comorbid conditions. So vaccinating ourselves helps, helps protect those individuals from the significant flu-related morbidity and mortality that they can experience. And um, the flu vaccine can help us too, even if – so the flu vaccine, unfortunately, is sort of like a crapshoot, right? From mm -hmm. year to year, we're changing the components of the of the influenza vaccination. This year, it's a quadrivalent vaccine vaccinating against uh, a couple different strains of influenza A and then influenza B. And we're making best guess assumptions on what the prominent strains of the influenza virus are going to be year to year. Okay. And um, – Oftentimes, we can miss on those and the effectiveness of the flu vaccine can be lower in those years. But even if we sort of don't get the strains exactly right, the influenza vaccination can prevent, prevent severe disease among us and help uh, prevent yeah. the spread of influenza. Yeah, I'm, so. I mean, it's even if it's an, an off year, yeah, off year, exactly. you're still going to have an effect that's positive mm -hmm. to society. Yeah. And uh I think what's interesting, and I think the average person doesn't realize this, and it's something that I didn't realize until recently, I think when we had a conversation about it, was that the flu is actually always present. It's just migrating mm -hmm. from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere, depending on the weather, yeah. and that it mutates along the way, which is why you have to have a vaccine for it every year, mm -hmm. and that you, correct me if I'm wrong, obviously you're the expert here, um, you project what the strands are going to be based off of what they are, for example, in the United States, what they are in the Southern hemisphere mm -hmm. immediately before yeah. winter comes. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we just, we're basically forecasting, like I said, yeah. it's, it's best guess approximation, but the influenza uh, virus is a seasonal, is what's called a seasonal virus. So it typically peaks in the winter months mm -hmm. and then is very, has very low sort of baseline endemic rates in the non-winter months, but occurs in the winter months of other countries, which are opposite, se yeah, opposite yeah. seasonally from what we have here in the United States. So yeah, it's sort of like this back and forth transmissibility <laughs> of, uh, of influenza based on season. But um, yeah, um, so I think that 
conveying to adult, adults, in particular, the importance of vaccinating when dealing with adult vaccination, the importance of vaccinating themselves against um, influenza and pertussis in particular uh, in order to protect their loved ones, mm -hmm. I think it would be an effective method to increase vaccination rates overall because everybody, nobody wants to think that they're the ones who would be responsible for any sort of um, any sort of uh, bad outcomes for, for their loved ones. Yeah. So I think that that would be effective um, in, um, in increasing vaccination rates. But um, we we might want to. Do you want to shift into vaccine hesitancy, like just in in general? Um, yeah. So uh, what, what I was going to ask you is the um, with the vaccine hesitancy, something that I often come across, like on on my uh, social media for intelligent speculation, like Instagram or Facebook, whenever I post about vaccines is people always bring up like the vaccine courts and that some people uh, unfortunately experience vaccine side effects. And I was just curious as to what your take was on that. Um, you know, as somebody who is an expert in this, I mean, obviously I have my own opinions on how I rebut these things, but yeah. I'm just curious as what to your, th what your thoughts were on this. So, um, I think we need to go back to sort of the origins of the anti-vaccine movement. So everything really started with this guy named Andrew Wakefield. And he's a, he was, let's be clear, he was very a important. physician, yes. was a physician in uh, the United Kingdom. So he produced a report in the late 90s, I think it was 1999, um, alleging that there was a link between the MMR vaccine in particular and autism. Mm -hmm. His results were subsequently debunked in uh, 2004 and Lancet retracted the article in 2010. And as a result of that work, uh, Andrew um, Wakefield lost his medical license. So he can no longer practice medical. Um, um, he can no longer be a practicing medical doctor. Yeah. But it's so basically what he did was he manufactured results based on the financial motivations that he had. So he didn't disclose that he had financial conflicts when he reported his results. Okay. And um, so not he, only was it like bad science, it wasn't like he was just being careless. It was no, fraud. It was fraud. Yeah. And that's why he lost his medical license because yeah. he put the lives of the people that he was working with, the children that he was working with, he put their lives at risk and yeah. he was deemed negligent. And that's why he ultimately lost his medical license. But he manufactured results. He fabricated this link between, between autism and the MMR vaccine. Okay. However... That was really the start, the thing that really kicked off the anti-vaccine movement in the United States and around around the world. And um, so uh, things have really taken on a life of their own since then. Mm -hmm. So the anti-vaccine movement sort of languished in like the fringes of society for a long time. And people sort of privately had their own opinions. And more recently, it's come to the forefront because you have people, policymakers and celebrities that are really championing championing the the anti-vaccine movement despite the lack of scientific evidence and you have people like Robert F Kennedy Jr for example who is in um in the government right now uh who is just a massive anti-vaccine proponent mm -hmm. he actually 
So the outbreak that we have in America, Samoa right now, um, can actually sort of be directly attributed to him. Um, there were deaths, there were the death, two children died after the MMR vaccine. Okay. But, and people of course saw correlation as causation, which is something that I think that you as a critical thinker and to your audience want to dispel those sort of like myths. But, uh, he went after there were these two, two, these two children died and vaccine rates plummeted to about 31%. And now measles is free flowing through the America Samoa population. There's been like 2000 cases. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's really, really sad what's going on there right now. Yeah. But, um, the, um, what was I saying? But the uh, Robert uh, Kennedy. Yeah. So vaccine and then hesitancy. you've got people like Jenny McCarthy yeah. and all of these uh, natural and homeopathic individuals are pushing an anti-vaccine agenda yeah. because it's really to to their financial benefit. So a lot of people, when they talk about vaccines, are like, oh, big pharma is trying to force these vaccines on us to try and make money. And I'll be at- Or like call the population. Like there's but, conspiracy theories like that, that vaccines are designed to like sterilize us and to kill us basically. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the pharmaceutical companies make so little money comparatively with vaccines yeah. that it's not to their financial benefit whatsoever to- champion pseudoscience or anything like that or force um force vaccines into the public it accounts for like two or three percent of their overall revenue like yeah. yearly you know it's it's not a big impact but um aside from that everybody um is saying that you know or uh, people on the anti-vaccine side are saying that all this research is being you know conducted by pharmaceutical companies and that's just simply not true as epidemiologists we conduct cohort studies we conduct case control studies we look at retrospective cohorts like we conduct all of our own individual research and all of that research has also affirmed that vaccines are safe and effective in general now that's not to say that there aren't adverse events every you know very infrequently but those adverse events are incredibly uncommon. Yeah, they're very rare. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually my rebuttal is something along the lines of, yes, vaccines are not perfect. They don't, they are not 100% effective and they are not 100% safe simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't even think independently. Um, I mean, as in, as with any sort of efficacious medicine, uh, anything that works, you're going to have side effects. But the, yeah. but the thing is, the thinking is, is that you have to do a cost benefit analysis, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely um that's definitely one way to look at it. Um me in general, I always <laughs> I, I I say that I definitely look at it that way, but I also just say that your risk of having any sort of adverse event is one in a couple of million. Like yeah. we're talking about like very, very, like very small percentage race syndrome. And people will always be like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the one person that has my child experience like that adverse event. So yeah. I'm not going to get them vaccinated because I'm just going to rely on everybody else to get their children vaccinated and that should protect my child. But that selfish point of view, if that prevails often enough, then you get low vaccination you rates, get low vaccination you rates get an outbreak. and that herd immunity threshold that yep. we need to hit unfortunately we don't hit and the disease is free to propagate through the population yeah and it seems like it's so important for measles in particular because mm-hmm. i know before the show we were talking about how contagious measles is yeah. and that's because of its um what's the what's the technical term for how easy it is to transmit transmissivity or no so no. um so as epidemiologists we classify diseases 
in by by three parameters. We look at infectivity, pathogenicity, and virulence. Okay. And infectivity is the ability for a pathogen to induce infection in a host. Uh, pathogenicity is the ability to induce disease in the host. So not every pathogen that infects you causes disease. Causes disease. Okay. So think of like typhoid Mary, for example. Okay. You know, she had um, E. coli, I think it was, E. coli that didn't present or manifest outwardly symptomatically, but she was able to transmit it. Um, so it didn't induce disease in her, but she was infected by by the disease. Mm-hmm. And then virulence is the ability of the disease to induce severe disease. So rarely do you have something that checks all of those boxes, that has high infectivity, high pathogenicity, and high virulence. Mm-hmm. Measles just so happens to be one of the very few viruses that is highly infective, highly pathogenic, and highly virulent. So measles is currently potentially the most infective agent or the most infective pathogen in the world. So how we measure infectivity is through something called the basic reproductive number or r naught. And um, measles has an r naught of 15, which means that one individual who's infected with measles, the primary person, mm-hmm. will give rise to 15 secondary cases. So that means one person is going to go out there assuming that they're going to be interacting with people and they're going to cause 15 additional infections. So for comparison's sake, influenza, which we deem is a very highly infective yeah. virus, has an r naught of 2. So when you're talking about measles r naught of 15 to 20, you're talking about a um, you're talking about 7.5 to 10 times the infectivity in a measles virus. So measles is is a uh, highly, highly infective. It induces disease in almost all of cases, and it's a very severe pathogen. So measles is characterized by sore throat, runny nose, you know, disseminated rash, and a fever of 100 degrees. That's what we call a clinical case definition. Okay. So clinical cases are different than laboratory-confirmed cases. Clinical cases are based on whether or not um, you satisfy certain clinical criteria. We can observe certain symptoms in you. Mm-hmm. And then laboratory confirmed is if we run a PCR or some sort of laboratory test to confirm your infection. Like do, do a swab or something exactly. like that and then so, actually identify the virus. Mm-hmm. And okay. that's why when you, that's important to know for your viewers because when they're going to be reading articles about, about outbreaks or about disease or something like that, they'll see clinically confirmed cases versus laboratory confirmed cases. So just important to, to know the difference is clinical confirmation deals it it can identify disease more quickly and um unfortunately with less sensitivity and specificity so there's there is the potential for there to be false positives and false negatives but yeah i mean we can only do laboratory confirmation in so many cases yeah absolutely but um anyway measles also can lead to have severe complications such as encephalitis which is a swelling of the brain um it can cause permanent deafness it can cause permanent neurological deficiencies and it can actually result in death as well and that doesn't happen in all cases in palliative care can do a pretty good job of preventing those outcomes mm-hmm. but that doesn't take away from the fact that those those outcomes can can result yeah it's uh, it's pretty scary stuff and i think i was reading recently too that um i mean it was just one recent publication i mean I, it'll probably be studied in more depth, I don't know if you heard anything about it, but that measles actually wipes the immune system in certain in some cases. Oh, I I do no? not know about that. Okay, maybe I'm misinformed, but I think I was reading recently that uh, it 
can cause immune amnesia or immune system amnesia so that you're all of the immunity that you've built up prior to your actual infection from measles can be erased, leaving you even more vulnerable, that which is be, terrifying. Yeah, that would be a, uh, yeah, very, very scary. Uh, that's well, very well, scary. Given, given how virulent it is and the uh, infectivity and all of these, well, these three benchmarks that you pointed out and that measles already checks off all three of those. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it's, it's definitely terrifying stuff. And what's going on in the American Samoa, that's that's bad. And then you mentioned um, yeah, the, in, there's something going on in Africa too. Yeah. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, they're actually dealing with two simultaneous outbreaks right now. Um, they're dealing with a very large Ebola outbreak, the second largest Ebola outbreak ever after the 2014 to 2016 outbreak. Mm -hmm. And um, they're also dealing with the largest measles outbreak in the world right now. There have been over 280,000 cases and 5,700 deaths. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, I, I mean, the causes of the, the causes of the outbreak there are varied. So, there is some mistrust of the government. There is some mistrust of vaccines in general. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with the, with the Ebola crisis, unfortunately. So a lot of people I think see, see loved ones going into, you know, these, these tents and these health centers and whatnot, and then never coming back out again. Yeah. And it sort of just fosters a mistrust with the healthcare system in general. Okay. But the larger problem is that we don't have good healthcare delivery systems in these areas. So vaccines, their storage their, their methods of storage are varied, but the measles vaccine in particular requires the maintenance of a cold chain. So if the measles vaccine isn't held under X temperature, okay. it loses its its efficacy and will reduce the effectiveness overall in the population. So maintaining that cold chain, reaching out to different buried rural areas within the country is very, very difficult to do. So... Um, so vaccination has its challenges or its limitations there. Yeah. But so, they, so, so beyond the public scare over just healthcare in general, it's just seems from like a logistics standpoint, it's already it a challenge. Difficult. It's already a challenge. Yeah. So like these things, these things compounding together, just make it even more, mm -hmm. more difficult for, uh, proper vaccination rates. Yeah. And, um, I, I mean, it's truly unfortunate because measles is a virus that, <clears throat> We have the potential to actually eradicate, yet we haven't been able to do so because of our limitations in vaccine delivery, but more than that, our limitations in getting individuals here in the United States to to stop. Compliancy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the education aspect, the the nonsense that's flowing flowing around and uh well, in yeah. the early 2010s, measles was actually declared eliminated in the United States. So when a virus oh, yeah, or mm -hmm. bacteria or a parasite is declared uh, eliminated, that means we've halted the local spread of the virus So, or, or pathogen in general. So if we've halted the local spread, we say that we've eliminated the, the pathogen in our okay. population. So there was no local spread of measles in the United States. All the cases were travel imported. So individuals would go to different parts of the world and they'd come back with a measles infection. So, um, 
Things have changed. I mean, Clearly. now, Clearly. now we yeah. are having <laughs> localized transmission of the measles virus for the first time in years because of vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance, um, which is which is really unfortunate. And uh, the United States isn't even the 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 worst case of it. In Europe, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine resistance has much higher rates than here in the United States. And one thing that I forgot to mention before about about the promotion of vaccine hesitancy and like this misinformation campaign is there that there's actually evidence now that we know that Russia hacked our election in 2016. We also know that Russian, Russian, um, uh, Russian operatives have been spreading misinformation about vaccines yeah. within our country and that, European countries yeah, that's, as well. Uh, that's really interesting. We did an article about that, yeah. about uh, the misinformation warfare regarding vaccines and how Russia is using that to foment discord, distrust, and just create havoc on our society because mm-hmm. it seems like that's what they're intent on doing is just uh, creating uh, creating this dissonance in any sort of democracy. I'd say they've yeah. been pretty remarkably <laughs> successful. Uh, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, no, no, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And the um, the ability to spread misinformation through social media these days and online uh, avenues or conduits, it's it's just remarkable. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable. So the internet, I mean, sort of a double-edged sword, right? I mean, the the free flow of information is absolutely essential for the development of society. Individuals can only be truly free when they have access to all of the information that they require to make educated and informed decisions. And I would say that that the number one component of any democracy is that free flow of information, that unfiltered information where people can actually make their own assessments on, on the country that in which they live. When they're given facts. Exactly. (laughs) But the problem is people now are taking advantage of, of that. They're taking advantage of the fact that the internet is our number one distributor of information and they've bogged it down with, with misinformation. And um, unfortunately, that's led to a massive gap in in reality for a number of people. So it's, uh, yeah, it's truly, truly unfortunate. I think that people have this tendency to uh, want to go out and just confirm whatever preconceived notions they have, whatever fits their narrative is the set of facts in which they're, they're interested. Confirmation bias. Yes. <laughs> and, um, that's just uh, the internet that we have today, the information that we have today facilitates that natural disposition that we have as humans to want to be right yeah. because there are there are there's quote unquote evidence for all variety of different perspectives that are either outside of the mainstream or um, have uh, are, are just, um, are just incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. And like you were saying that the, the internet is the internet's engineered for it. Because if you look at the algorithms, the algorithms, they are designed to keep us in bubbles mm-hmm. um, and to feed us information that makes us feel good. So that way we will make purchases or they can learn more about us so that they can feed us targeted ads. And so that way in the hopes of, uh, 
hopes of us making purchases and yeah, it's just, it's just kind of crazy what it, what has happened. Um, I categorically agree that the free flow of information is paramount to a healthy society, but along with the good comes the bad and society appears to be very ill-equipped to deal with the massive amount of misinformation out there in general. People just can't seem to discern fact from fiction. But yeah, I mean, it, all of it's very, very interesting, particularly when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. And uh, anyway, yeah, were there the last few things that you wanted to uh, well, wanted just, to say to the audience? Well, I was just going to say, um, sort of relating back to, um, sort of relating back to what we've been saying, is I just think that the role of the scientist has been fundamentally altered as a result of, of this widespread dissemination of misinformation. So as scientists, our role before was always just to go out, conduct our research, write up our results, provide it to policymakers or um, stakeholders, and then let them make the decisions that they need to make for the good of our country or for the people that they represent. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that just doesn't happen anymore. So we can provide policymakers with all of the information and yet yeah. nothing gets done. Um, I think if you, if you look at America in particular, we live in, you know, one of the most anti-science, um, anti-fact, uh, societies out there currently as of currently, particularly yeah. of, as of 2016, it seems to have really gone that way. Well, even before then, well, um, I know we had, yeah. it, but like 2016 was kind of, yeah. uh, seemed to be a very important year for us and whether and what course we were going to take, are we going to, you know, choose to continue to ignore facts and become more anti-science? Well, I will say this, that I don't think anti-science is, a Republican ideal. I don't think it's a Democrat ideal. I think that anti-science mentality is pervasive throughout American society. And I think that the anti-science movement in general has mm -hmm. been occurring for years and years and years. So it's, it's the reason why we don't function solely on nuclear power right now. I mean, that wasn't specifically a Trump idea. That was an idea that, I mean, we've, that been, was more championed had, by Democrats. Yeah. We had, we had nuclear power proposed all the way back in the nineties and yeah. was shot down by Democrats and Republicans in Congress. We've had anti GMO movements. We've had anti vaccine movements and all of these things occurred pre Trump. So yeah. we can say that Trump is sort of, sort of been a champion of that anti-truth, anti-science um, anti mentality. Yeah. But I think that the roots of that have occurred much, much earlier. And um, is there, no, and, I agree. Yeah. yeah and policymakers in, in the United States, just in general, the policies that we make aren't bore out by science. Like it, even when we talk all the way back to Reagan, when we talk about tri trickle-down economics, for example – where this idea that if we provide tax cuts to the rich, that's going to result in more jobs and boost up the whole economy. Evidence has disproved that for 40 years, yet it's been the prevailing economic policy of presidents, both Democrat and Republican since then, and policymakers since then. So just in general, 
I think that our role as scientists, whether or not it's an epidemiologist like me or a physicist like you or an economist or a political scientist or um, whether or not you're in the actual natural sciences or you're in the social sciences, mm -hmm. we need to focus on being advocate scientists. And that's sort of like where I guess that we, we can leave this, this conversation is that it's not just our job anymore to analyze the data uh, write up the results and disseminate our information. We also need to be the people who take action on our information. So we need to be advocates for our people. And I think that we are starting to see that. Like we mm -hmm. saw it in the Flint water crisis where the people who were conducting the research there were not getting any sort of give in the government. So yeah. they took the results wide and they advocated for the population and they were dinged by the science of the community for doing so because that's viewed as not our role. Like we're yeah. supposed to stay in our lane. We're supposed to just be yeah. the people who find out the facts. Yeah, yeah. Stay, stick but, in your lab and then, you know, publish your papers and that's it. Exactly. Yeah. But if nobody out there is listening to the to reason, to the facts that we have, then yeah. we need to adjust or we need to shift the way in which we disseminate information. And I think that we need to start becoming advocates. We need to start engaging in advocacy and we need to be advocate scientists. Well, as you know, I couldn't agree more, which is why yeah, the, why we're even having this conversation right now mm -hmm. uh, and why I started the brand Intelligent Speculation and subsequently, obviously, this uh, video and podcast stuff, uh, Thinking Critically, is because I've, I've noticed it for a while now and it's really disconcerting that scientists are not being heard um, and experts in general. So, I mean, I would go back and say, you know, you're talking about how the role of the scientist has changed. It seems as though society in general aren't listening. They don't want to listen to experts anymore. Everyone wants to be a keyboard warrior, so to quote unquote, or just, you know, go to, go to YouTube university or Google stuff. And that somehow that's, you know, that's equivalent to the years and years of hard, uh, hard work that's done you know, research wise or studying in the classroom that your average expert, I'm talking about like medical doctors and scientists. I mean, you know, it's not an easy road. It's a long, it's a long road, but yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely an interesting time that we live in. And I, uh, I totally agree that scientists need to start talking more about what it is they're doing and making sure that the average person, the public understands that it's important that we're not a part of some sort of massive conspiracy to control them. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think a lot of that, a lot of that onus and that burden falls on us. Yeah. So yeah, we are the people with the degrees and we are the people who've done the research and we are the people who are writing the results in the science and everything like that. But we need to make it accessible to the population. And that's, that's a hundred percent on us. Like mm -hmm. we need to learn how to write to the public. We need to learn how to be accessible to people. We need to run for office. We need to get out there and, I think that, you know, scientists in general, I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of a lot of people in academic circles have this superiority complex where they yeah. think that I'm right, you're wrong. I don't have to explain myself. And that's just not the case anymore. Like we need to we need to be intelligible to all of the community, not just the scientific community. So whether that's changing the way we write, changing the way we disseminate information, making things more accessible, like we need to be the agents for that change. We can't rely on anybody else to do it. We yeah. have to do it. And I think that that's why what you're doing is so great because you're trying to teach people how to think. You're not showing them what to think. So that's what we do Like yeah. in our educational system nowadays yeah. is we say, 
this is what you should think, not this is how you should think. And uh, I think that that's why thinking critically, intelligent speculation is going to is a great thing that people should definitely, definitely, you know, engage with because that that is your your single best tool in the world, right? Is being able to formulate your own opinion and arrive at your own conclusions and think critically in general. Yeah. So. Anyway, yeah, I think we'll just leave it there. I just want to thank you so much again for uh, for coming on and you know teaching us about vaccines and epidemiology in general. I certainly learned a lot. Um, as you people at home know, uh, one of the things that I talk about frequently is intellectual humility and knowing that, admitting to yourself that you don't know everything. So I learned a great deal today about it, and I wanted to thank you. Uh, for those of you at home, um, yeah, so... Thanks again for tuning in and uh, catch us on the next episode. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and a need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.